Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today we have a guest who's going to talk to us about the most recent research that's come out on Generation Z. Our guest, Jonathan Morrow, uh, teaches at Talbot School of Theology adjunct in the apologetics program, but he's the cultural uh, kind of head of Impact 360 Institute that has partnered recently with Barn Research Group to release a second volume to the massive study they've done on Gen Z. The first volume came out in 2018. We had Jonathan on to talk about what that means for ministry, for teaching, for parenting, for just getting an insight into this generation. Obviously, a lot has changed in the last three years, including the COVID outbreak. And this study reflects, in particular, the emotional state of this generation and their worldview. So if you are a parent, a teacher, a coach, anyone who's interested in understanding this generation, I think you'll find it fascinating. One of my favorite parts of this study was how the data showed that Gen Z thinks about humor and how to use humor as a way to connect with them. So this actually was first interview on my YouTube channel, which uh, again is in partnership with the Apologetics Program. But I think you're really, really going to enjoy this recent data on Gen Z. So as usual, if you do enjoy it, we hope you'll consider sharing it with a friend. What does the latest research show about Gen Z? Their use of smartphones, uh, their humor, the way they relate, their mental and emotional well-being. Well, there is a massive new study out by the Barna Research Group in partnership with Impact 360 that I think is going to interest anybody who cares about reaching, ministering, understanding the next generation. And I've got a good friend of mine who's also a fellow teacher at Biola University here with me. He's an author. He has helped commission this second study on Gen Z with Barna. So for the past three to four years plus has been involved in analyzing this data and asking what it means for the church. So there's nobody more qualified to come on and talk about this than uh, my friend Jonathan Morrow. So thanks for coming on, buddy. Hey, Sean, great to be with you. Really excited to talk about some of this research and what that means for us. Well, let's dive in right away because I'm really curious how this this first study was in 2018 and it was just called Gen Z. This new one, I don't even have a physical copy yet. I printed it out. I'm assuming it's in the mail, but literally broke this yeah. week. What's the difference, broadly speaking, between these two studies? Yeah, that's great. So in in back in volume, what we're now calling volume one, the orange, uh, the orange book that Jesus held up, what we did there was that was really the first largest look at Gen Z, kind of what they believe, what are their assumptions, motivations, values. And then we also mapped that against all the different generations as well. Boomers, Gen X, uh, millennials, all of that. And that was really the first look at, at that sense into Gen Z, which is American teenagers today, you know, born between 1999 and 2015. Um, and so that was just a, a vast study. We interviewed youth pastors, we interviewed uh, parents and, and kind of really kind of set the table around, okay, what's this new, new generation look like? And so what we wanted to do was a, a several years later, um, not only track certain things, which we'll come to a little bit later on, I know in our conversation, but also really do a deep dive around the emotional lives of Gen Z, uh, talking about technology, and then talk about faith and their practices. So if the first volume, volume one, the orange copy, um, that really just kind of set the stage. 
and then um, really began the conversation. And then now we're able to kind of take it further and do a deep dive on those three key areas, especially in our emotional lives, the screens, faith practices, things like that, and really dig into where they're at. And then, and, and then what's unique in some ways, um, which we didn't intend when we were thinking about doing this study, when we started even planning for it back early in 2020, was obviously how COVID and how that would affect everything to take a snapshot right in the middle of that about what American teenagers are thinking, you know, the teenagers, young adults from 13 to 21. We're going to jump into COVID and how it's affected the behavior and beliefs of this generation. But just to make sure on the same page, roughly when we talk about Gen Zers, we mean basically upper elementary towards those just graduating college and entering into the workforce. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good way. And then there's teens and young adults. There's kind of a 13 to 17 and then an 18 to 21. And then uh, the report, volume two, the the, the teal book uh, behind me there, you can see it, um, has it has it has it broken out in certain parts because it's what's interesting is is we we also wanted to track, OK, when their teenagers are at home under their parents and in that normal rhythm until 18, how does that map on what does that look like when they're maybe out at college on their own, 18 to 21, that young adult, and even even beginning to pull that, some of that apart, even as Gen Z kind of grows up and matures? Well, I want to know what surprised you. First, those of you joining us, we're talking with Jonathan Morrow. He has commissioned a massive new study on Gen Z with the Barnard Research Group, where he's at at Impact 360. We're going to walk through some of the findings of what it means uh, for ministry today. Uh, so let me ask you, whenever you do a massive study like this, you have a son and you have kids who are Gen Zers, you work with Gen Zers. What surprised you in this study, either good or bad, or you just didn't expect it? Yeah, I would say if you'll hold me to one, I think I think one of the things that I think is really interesting um, was, well, actually, I'll, I'll come back to come back to the moral and spiritual piece in a minute. But the overwhelming negative emotion that Gen Z identified with the most, 58% said tiredness and that they're tired. And that was a really interesting stat because I think um, we, we also did questions around um, do they feel pressure, external and internal pressure. We kind of dive deep into that in this report um, from others and themselves. But I think that emotion of tiredness that they all agreed with, about 58% agreed with that was surprising to me. Because I think that's an interesting insight for a parent, as a parent, um, as somebody who works with students and teaching and training students like you do, um, that's good to have in the back of my mind that that's their perception. That's like, you know, I'm just kind of tired. And, and so that, that's kind of set some things, even emotionally, uh, that we need to be aware of. That jumped out to me too. I wouldn't have been surprised by lonely or anxious, but tired is not a description I've often heard for this generation. And it's probably true outside of Gen Z. Our culture as a whole feels tired of certain social issues, tired of political engagement, tired of quarantine. I guess the question is how it's going to affect this generation in the long run. Now, with that said, one of the terms that's used in this study that I find really interesting is Gen Zers are referred to as positive pessimists. Now, there seems to be a contradiction that's there, but sometimes the studies I've learned that there can be two descriptions of something that don't contradict. They just capture the complexity of an issue. So how can this generation as a whole be described as positive and yet pessimist at the same time? Three and four of Gen Z agree their perspective on life is positive. And that's, you know, about 73%, which is so, okay. All right. 
things are going to go well. And then you also have this idea where you have 56% think that the worst is going to happen as well. So you have kind of both of these ideas mm-hmm. kind of showing up in the same place. And both of those are coexisting in the minds of, of today's teenagers. So that in that sense, they're very much positive pessimists. Yeah, it just fascinates me that three out of four believe they have a positive outlook at life and then half think something's going to go wrong. I don't know if the data shows this, but do you suspect some of that is tied to their experience with COVID or was this study done before COVID hit? No, I think it was right in the middle of right in the middle of COVID. So, I mean, it was they were well into it. So I think. I think there was some natural youthful optimism that still exists, but then you have some reality. I mean, one of the differences we saw in the first volume in study was that Gen Z, in terms of um, contrast to millennials, their older siblings or or even parents in some cases, or brothers, sisters, whatever that might be, um, Gen Z tends to be more pragmatic, pragmatist, and, and yeah. Gen X tend to, and our millennials tend to be more um, um, idealistic. And so I think in some of the ways you're seeing that continue to play itself out um, with how they're like, wow, what a year. I'm still optimistic, but I'm also realistic and pessimistic at the same time. That's fair. I see that pragmatism with my son. A while ago, I had issues with plumbing and I was like, a guy called plumber. He's like, watch a YouTube video, like figure it out. And it's like this generation thinks they can figure it out, but COVID doesn't mm-hmm. fit into that box. It's made things harder than it was. So that's that's great. Are there any other ways where this report brought out or even your own research that COVID has affected the beliefs or behavior of this generation? Like one of the questions that I have is, is it going to shape their view of truth? Now, this relativism piece we're going to come back to doesn't seem to indicate that, but COVID doesn't care how we feel about it. I've often mm-hmm. wondered if people are going to start to think, okay, wait a minute, there is a truth outside of us and we have to discover. That's one question that I've had with my Biola students. They've said COVID made them appreciate certain simple things in life they didn't before. I think the data still remains to be seen, but did this study reveal anything about how COVID is shaping their worldviews? Yeah, I think we'll come to the moral and spiritual relativism and some of those kind of things in a little bit, I think, in terms of specifics. But I do think that one of the things that we're seeing along with the emotional health is is around the outlook, the, the suicidal ideation, some of the harder things. I think that the data showing up there, not only with the CDC, but also in some of the indicators when we were measuring emotional health and emotional life and things like that. But I think you're right. I think I think students and teenagers today really want um, – I think they've seen the value of embodied relationships. One of the things that we asked was – even do you want to be, to do class online or would you rather do it in person? And I think in upwards of 60% during COVID after they've had a spring where everybody had to do it, wanted to do it in person. Like they're like, so, so I don't, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's highlighting it. It's everything digital is flooded and um, meaning hyper um, accessible, like everything went digital, right. <laughs> Including TV shows and everything else. And so I think, one of the things I've noticed, not only in our own kids, but in students we work with and, and in this study, was they want the embodied relationships. And that's going to affect, I think, how they how they see the world in, in, in some pretty big ways as well. But I think I think there's some other factors um, that we didn't ask specifically, but there's some hints at in terms of them. Okay, who do you trust? And authority is, is gotcha. a big issue because 
you know, whether that's, hey, follow the science or whatever that might be, you know, and everybody's got their their set of facts, their set of truths, and, and they got to figure this out. Like, how do I navigate all that? So those are all things that I think we're seeing play out in real time in this generation. Here's a real interesting question coming from Andrew. He says, does data on Gen Z show apathy toward belief in anything? And when I ask you the question about surprise, one of the things that surprised me is we hear so much about the nuns N-O-N-E-S, of a generation not defining themselves by a spiritual moniker. And that increased with millennials and increased with Gen Z. And yet this study showed higher levels of interest among non-Christian Gen Zers than older generations. Talk about that phenomenon a little bit. Yeah, I think I think one of the things we're seeing there is so in the first study, what you had is is kind of the leveling out, I think, of people going, okay, I don't have to affiliate anymore with a religious belief or denomination. Atheism was on the rise, definitely higher than, than the average public. That stayed about steady for this study in terms of where the atheism was at. I think people are becoming more comfortable talking about what they actually think and don't think and don't feel like – there's just not that pressure as much from previous generations to say, I'm going to identify as a, as non-denominational or Bible church or Baptist or whatever that might be. And so, or Christian or Catholic, whatever that might be. And rather there's that none category, but then also you've got, you still have this spiritual curiosity. There's still things they want to learn about, think about, talk to their friends about, but then they, even that's conflicted as, as we'll talk about, I know just in the sense of, you know, feeling like they, they don't even want to disagree with people. And, and there's a trend towards that, but they're still asking these questions. And so I think for this generation, we're seeing both of those things happening in real time. There's kind of a, there's kind of an honesty of, yeah, I don't really have to pretend anymore. They're growing up fully post-Christian, all the shared assumptions, values about truth, God, morality, culture, moving beyond Christianity. They're growing up without those things in some ways, a blank slate. And so, whereas, you know, Millennials tended to have a a bad experience, perhaps some of them did with religion or Christianity or church and reacted against. A lot of Gen Zers are just like, they're really a blank slate. They haven't had, they're just like, tell me more about that. Or even the pluralism question and different religions and some of those kind of things. I think there's some curiosity built in just simply because they're not aware of a lot of things that even previous generation would have been along the way. So I think that's interesting as well. If that data is true, and I have no reason to think that it's not, that is a massive shift within a generation because going all the way back to the beginning, Christian and spiritual beliefs were embedded into the schools, obviously the church and the culture in the family. And this is the first generation you're saying that significant numbers of them don't have negative baggage like millennials and are curious partly because they just don't have biblical literacy and understanding whether they accept it or reject it. I would interpret that as a positive trend among Gen Zers. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I do. I do. I think it's a great opportunity for sure. Now, obviously, when a vacuum exists, when, for example, nobody is coming in and framed what Christianity is or what the Bible is or who Jesus is or what truth is, something or someone is going to frame it pretty quickly. So mm. so I, I, think, I think it is a positive thing with the asterisks of, as leaders, as Christians, as mentors, disciplers, teachers, we want to go, hey, you know, let's ha- have you ever read the New Testament for yourself? Have you read the words of Jesus? Have you ever thought about what God says about these things? And so I think both are happening right there where you've got both this kind of curiosity and kind of a more of a blank slate or, 
yeah, I just have a lot of experience with that. Or, and you've got the fact that, you know, the power of media and narratives and the amount of time they're spending and all that kind of stuff is shaping quickly what this generation comes to believe about reality. Given the power of media, let's talk about smartphones because that's really the the factor which shapes how they experience and see the world. Uh, the data was interesting. The amount of time that Gen Zers are spending on smartphones didn't really shock me that it's roughly between uh, five to six hours. Now, when you include all media, like watching movies and television, now some studies are seven, eight, nine plus mm-hmm. outside of school if they're going physically. But smartphones alone, five to six hours uh, amongst Gen Zers. What surprised me, though, is how many think that their spend their generation spends too much time on smartphones and online. I would not have expected that kind of self reflection. Um, what does some of that data show, and what do you make of it? Yeah, that was also that would have been my probably one of my number two on the uh, surprising scale because basically sixty percent of of this generation thinks that they're that they spend too much time on screens, and that's sixty okay, percent. Let, let me jump in, just catch that right now. Six out of ten Gen Zers think yeah. that they or at least their generation spends too much time. That's yeah. why, if you had asked me before the study, I probably would have said. 15 or 17 percent so that's significant yeah i think so because the ne- the next one is you know about 25 percent says my generation spends just about the right time on on, on screens uh you know my favorite one is the i don't think it matters at 13 percent. so like yeah it doesn't matter okay <laughs> but you know but 60 percent. i mean that that is surprising because that's the whole generation that's not just christians that's not just somebody who has religious background that's they're like, yeah, I'm on it. I sense that with the students I'm around. It's kind of, I, I'm on it too much. I feel badly about it, but am I actually going to do something about it either? So I think all three of those things are happening all at the same time. <laughs> That's a good question. Now, the, the way the question was worded was 60% think their generation spends too much time, six out of 10, mm-hmm. but then 53% feel bad about how much time they're spending. So it's both a cognitive and mm-hmm. an emotive experience for them. Uh, that that just that surprised me. Now, yeah. one of the things this study says is to focus not just on the quantity of time, but quality. And this is this is the second time I've heard this. When I was reading the recent common sense media study, maybe three or four months ago, they started saying we have to shift our paradigm from just purely quantity of time, especially with online school, to quality time why is that distinction important yeah because this i mean smartphones technology digital media it's here to stay it's not going anywhere and so i think everyone has seen all parts of study not just ours but even the health data that look there's just the more they're on the more increase of isolation anxiety depression there's there's all these corresponding behaviors so in general the quantity discussion gets a lot of the attention, meaning we just need to we just need to cut the stuff out, out. And there's definitely times when we do need to take a pause, do need to hit rest and encourage our students and disciple them to help them think in those ways. But then there's also the component 
and in the report, we do a good job of trying to trying to put a framework together where you can kind of help build towards discernment with not only the kinds of things you're consuming, but the amount of time. And when those both kind of gotcha. go up and to the right together and those are paired and, and there's actually some interesting data, especially that David Kinnaman in our conversations kind of kind of really highlight likes to highlight as well that um, under practicing Christians, the ones who are resilient, um, about 10 percent of Christians would would fall into that category of resilient, they tend to have habits that are in that upper right-hand quadrant of both discerning, meaning they have less time on average, and they're more discerning about the kinds of things they're consuming. And so there's kind of a cool correlation in terms of, you know, students and in, in, in Gen Zers who have a resilient faith who are actually practicing some of that. And you can see it kind of play out that way. That's a really interesting uh, way way to think about it. I'm increasing my mic here a little bit. Got got a little feedback. I see some questions coming in about uh, people that want to know, okay, what do we do to reach this generation? We are getting there, I promise. One of the things I've learned from the Barnard Research Group and David Kinneman is that we have to have proper information and knowledge first. So we diagnose the problem and then we can fix it, so to speak. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. So let's unpack some more of this data, especially some of the stuff that is so surprising. Probably my, maybe my favorite part about this study was about Gen Z humor. Now I've got three Gen Zers in my home and I've already noticed a little bit of a different approach to humor, what they laugh at than I laugh at. And sometimes I'm like, is that appropriate? Is that not? Like it just, it blurs some boundaries how does what did this study reveal about how Gen Z approaches humor? Yeah, this was really important, and this is something that, um, especially my friend, our mutual friend David Kenneman, this is something that he's been trying to think about for years now, and so he put it in this study uh, because you're right. I mean, it is different what this generation laughs at, and so 64 percent of Gen Z um, say that what they find funny is dark or cynical, mm. and so that's interesting in and of itself, right? Because you're like, huh. Because the humor in some ways kind of is a window to your soul, your heart, kind of what you kind of think yeah. about stuff that matters. Nearly two-thirds uh, say they find things funny that, that they shouldn't. And that's, that's an interesting one. So there's, aware, there's at least a surface-level awareness that you're like, yeah, that's funny to me, and I shouldn't be laughing at it. You know, and so, but, but I tend to laugh at things that are more dark and cynical. I think they see they, one of the things that was probably one of my favorite parts of the study is we did word clouds where we went into detail. We asked a split group of Gen Zers two questions. What do you do when you feel anxious? And what do you do when you feel lonely? And they basically put all their different words in there and that's in the report and everything else. But one of the things that was interesting that helped relieve some of the anxiety was la- like finding memes that expressed this, uh, the, the, the life situation that they're in that they could laugh at, that they could associate. So in some ways, humor was, was almost a decompression valve in some ways, uh, according to how they self-reported in the verbatims, which was really interesting um, to think about. And so because I think, I think one of the things that we need to be careful about is shutting them down at first too quickly on their humor because that's a real opportunity to lean in and, and, and invite, Hey, tell me what is it that you've, why do you, why do you think that's funny or why do you resonate with that more so than you really shouldn't be laughing at that? Cause if we do that, we may miss, mm-hmm. now we may eventually get there. I was like, Hey, what do you think? Is that really a good, maybe a couple of questions down the road or, you know, something like that. That's a hard question we can ask. And that's certainly good. 
But I also think that that is kind of a window into their experience and perceptions that if we'll listen, we'll learn a lot from them. If we'll just kind of, hey, tell me why you think that's funny or why is it that you, you know, you're drawn to that. This report seems to show more self-awareness than probably a lot of adults would attribute to young people in terms of their use of smartphones, their use of humor. Now, I find that interesting because when like with my son or other Gen Zers, oftentimes they'll share stuff with me that's funny and I don't want to shut it down because I want to keep the conversation going. But sometimes I don't think they understand how messed up the humor is which tells yeah. me that if two thirds of them are aware of it, there's a whole chunk of that not even being caught. There's a darkness just because of the age and experience. So that the natural human response, I think for adults is just like, that's wrong, don't laugh and to lecture. And that's a knee jerk reaction I have. But I think asking questions, like you said, and tell me about this, uh, can invite that conversation and awareness and a chance to speak into somebody's life. I think that's great input. Yeah. And I think too, like one of the things that I think has happened is that I think in some ways, given the amount of volume of media they've consumed already by this point as screenagers, there's just some desensitization that's occurred mm. that they just don't even register certain things anymore. Like if you've watched enough shows on Netflix where, you know, certain language is used or certain, you know, it's like, oh, this is really funny. I know there's a cuss word in this meme, but just skip that. It's almost like and not in, you know, the cussing conversation. We can talk about that later, but it's almost like they filter that out as if that doesn't need to fit in the grid of finally whatever is pure and honorable and good. But it's like, oh, but the really funny parts at like 14 seconds in or 12 <laughs> seconds into this, you know, it's like you go through all the stuff that's funny and they keep going. So, so I think, I think that's an opportunity too to ask, hey, do you, you know, if you, if you read it out loud, you sl- you slow it down, you read it back, you're like, should should that bother us a little more? What do you think? Mm. You know, some something like that. But yeah, humor is a very interesting window, and we spent some significant uh, time kind of investigating that in this study. Here's another interesting question: Is there a connection between, like, typically what comedians would do would be politically incorrect and say things you can't say elsewhere? Well, now that the clamp is coming down and you say one thing, you get canceled. Is this maybe an outlet you think for this generation where I can? I mean, I I've seen some <laughs> Gen Zers show me stuff. I'm like, that's just flat out racist. But I think they kind of find it funny because they know they're not supposed to say that. And there's a little bit of a rebellion behind it. So they connect with that kind of humor, not because they're racist, but because they're just sick of being told by the culture what you can say and what you can't say. So it's almost like they're caught in between this bind of like dark humor and political correctness on the other. Is Is that your experience and what you think the data maybe shows? Yeah, and one of the things we we asked that question a certain way, about 55% would agree that for my generation, humor is a form of rebellion. Um, oh, and that's so, interesting. And so, so, so that is kind of, a, I think you've picked up on something interesting. I think that also couples with the kind of apps that Gen Z tends to like, which are not the ones that are going to lead to them being canceled or used later. It's more of features around Snapchat or Instagram now, which is copying Snapchat with disappearing, everything disappears, quote unquote. It, it doesn't always disappear, but, but you know, they're doing things and sharing things that they don't think will be publicly consumed or, or captured in the same way. But yeah, I do think humor is a form of rebellion that they, that they put their finger on. They're like, yeah, that's just kind of a way that 
that want to express that. And so at least they're honest, right? And so that's a good, that's a good place to engage. Yeah, I did. This, this study showed that this is a generation as a whole that seems to be more comfortable talking about their hurt, their questions, their pain than other generations. And yeah. I think you, I, I'd be curious if you agree with this or not, that our culture has shifted towards victimization. And the downside is it turns people unnecessarily and creates a victimhood status. But on the other hand, it's given people permission to share genuine experiences of victimhood and experience freedom from it. Growing up in these times, which was not the same when you and I grew up, there seems to be an openness and willingness to just talk about issues, whether it's in sexuality, whether it's emotionally, Mm -hmm. that sometimes still surprises me that kids will just ask questions publicly in front of other students. I'm like, wow, there's an openness with this generation. Did that come out in the data? Yeah, it did in several ways. First, in the emotional lives, because they, like you mentioned, they are far more comfortable and self-aware of, of even emotional terminology and talking about internal feelings or thoughts than previous generations. And we, we go into that. Another piece where this showed up is when we talked about trauma, we measured a lot on different experiences of trauma in this book. Okay. And where that showed up, for example, um, 33% of, of black teenagers, for example, say they've experienced some form of racial trauma. And that's mm-hmm. defined in a pretty specific way, not just a negative experience, but, but something that persists longer. It's an emotion that persists longer uh, for, a, for a more prolonged period of time, for example. And so there's different experiences of trauma. And so one of the things that was a really important insight, I think, that, that Brooke Hemphill, the senior vice president at Barna, mentioned was around, um, for example, agency and victimhood. We want to help this generation talk about things honestly and what they experience in real terms, but then also be able to give them and move them in the direction of agency that you are not just defined by your experiences and what happens to you. And so that's, I think both a challenge and an opportunity, um, even in a year following 2020 with COVID as we head into 2021, that the more opportunities that we can help Gen Zers feel agency that they can do something about or with what they're feeling and move towards something healthy or good or true. I think that's going to be a big, a big deal moving forward. But we also don't want to get trapped in this kind of internal feedback loop of, well, I guess I'm lonely or anxious and I guess I always will be, or I'll, uh, bad, bad things happen to me and therefore they're always going to happen to me and therefore I can't do anything about it. And so I think that's the, that's going to be the, the, the tension that we're going to help have to help them navigate as we help them grow. That's that's a great tension. I'm happy to talk about genuine victimization and hurt and pain that this generation has experienced. Uh, we need to talk about that. Uh, one of the studies that came out that just, I don't know that it surprised me, but it said 24% of Gen Zers had considered suicide, at least contemplated the thought because of the COVID lockdown. That's one out of four. I mean, yeah. anybody watching this who knows a young person, that's a really serious thing. So you have one of the things I love about the study is there's these articles from different experts in there. And Kara Powell has one. And she says a question that adults should regularly ask young people is on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your mental health? I thought, mm-hmm. what a practical, helpful question. If one thing from this discussion, adults would do that. I'm going to start doing that with my kids with those that I talk with, 
that's a window that there may be a lot deep-seated hurt that is there. So I appreciate that the study brought out that level of hurt and pain, but also contrary to culture, you don't leave people there. Use the term agency. And I found that this generation wants to be told you can make a difference. There's hope. Here's a way to contribute to society. So victimization is real. And yet so is agency is one of the balances that study brings out. Well, let, let's shift to another. There's a few things that really surprised me about this. Let's talk about morality because yep. the jump in how many young people at least answer as if they're more relativists. That was definitely one of the top five that surprised me reading this study. I had to pause and look at it again. It was like, there's no way in that short period of time, but the data seems to show it. So talk about what the data shows and maybe what you draw from it. Yeah, I think that's really important because one of the things that was surprising to me and one of those ongoing tracking pieces that we wanted to pay attention to was some key thoughts on around morality. Does it shift based on society or does it stay consistent? And in our volume one study, the orange study from several years ago, right at about 24%, you know, basically agreed that what is morally right or wrong changes over time based on what a society thinks. So that was basically about 24%. In this study, just several, several years later, 31%, nearly one third Mm -hmm. agreed with the same thing. So you see it on the rise. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and we draw this out in the, in the, in the, in the report, the habits of Gen Z hasn't necessarily changed in terms of their church attendance or their other things like that. So what that tells me is like these things are like the same ones who are saying their spiritual lives are important. The same ones who are saying they're going to church, the same ones, all those kind of things are still happening. And yet you're seeing two increases in moral and spiritual relativism. One, the moral increase from 24 to 31%. The second one, which is um, well, and in the inverse of that one, which I also think is really important, only 10 percent strongly disagreed that mm. it shifts. So I think that's your convictional group of teenagers, Gen Zers, who are saying, no, actually, there is objective truth. It's right around that nine to 10 percent mark, I would say, because they actually understood the question rightly and said, you know, actually, no, it doesn't. And I strongly disagree. Like truth doesn't work that way. That's not the way this works. So I think that's illuminating on both sides because it's sliding. But also we, we track the basically um, more than one way to Jesus um, idea in terms of, you know, many roads can lead to God. Many paths can lead to eternal life. It went from 58% several years ago to 65% in this study. Wow. Again, over the same, same course of the same year, same question, hmm. age group with the same general habits. And so there's two things that hints at for me that I think are interesting. One, they're still going to church, but they're becoming more and more relativistic the more time they're there. Okay. So that's, so that's interesting in and of itself and not super encouraging because it's like, well, if you're spending about the same time engaged in these other spiritual habits as you were three years ago, culture pressure is stronger and you've not, um, come to see it any differently. So in, in whatever, whatever those leveraging effects are, because those are broad numbers across the generations. And so I think both of those increases in moral and spiritual relativism are very telling. And definitely for those who care about apologetics and worldview, like this audience does. And like, I know you and I care a lot about and speak a lot and teach on this and write yeah. on. It's more important than ever to draw 
um, draw attention to these things, but also to help them find a foundation for clear thinking on truth and morality and, and who Jesus claimed to be and all of these things, because that's an area of discipleship that I think um, the pressure is so strong right now and the momentum is so strong right now in our culture that they're, they're just moving a lot faster down that pathway um, into kind of, eh, you know, just shifts over time or kind of whatever you find is, is your truth is fine. Jesus is not the only way. Many other ways can get there. So, so I think those are two pretty surprising things that we unpack. So in some ways, I would have thought if you go back to the 90s, early 2000s, it's kind of live and let live to each his own. But now our culture is so quick to condemn certain behavior as being wrong, political views, racial yep. views. You almost would have thought there'd be a shift towards at least a recognition that there's a right and a wrong but rather at least in the reporting of young people, they're less likely to report that. It'd be tempting to dismiss it, but when it, you also have a 7% increase in those who believe there's multiple ways to God, then there seems to be something bigger going on, which I think you're pointing towards. That's a, man, I, I don't I don't have a theory for this. You know, I wrote a book on Gen Z and I've read every study I can get my hands on. And I'm happy to put forward theories. I don't know how to make sense of this data why in such a short period of time there would be such an increase on those two fronts i mean do you even have a working theory why that would be the case or are we just speculating yeah i think well i mean all right so we have the objective data that it's tracking and it's moving in that direction so i think we have that that's clear um what we don't have is a is a is a pure cause of it other than mm. Any my, my 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 working theory is this. I think it's related to social media and the and this and the invent invention of the smartphone and all of that and social media developing over the time and then more specifically around Netflix, Hulu, all the digital media. And here's why, because um, I call it the hyper personalization of reality. Hyper personalization is a marketing term. We've all experienced it where basically everyone tailors whatever your um wanting to your preferences. They're offering that through a marketing thing. So if Gen Z has grown up in this digital universe where everything has been curated and marketed and to their preferences and desires, then if that's true about my playlist, if that's true about what kind of food I like, if that's true about what's, what ads get served up to me, then why not truth? Why not morality? Why not gender? Why not sexuality? Why not how I want church? Why not how I want the Bible to work or not work or whatever? And so you have this in some ways, I think an unconscious projection of hyper-personalization on reality. Like the rest of reality is going to bend to my preferences as well. Why would, unless I've thought differently about it, I, I distrust authorities. They're not telling me the truth. So there's, there's that piece that's out um, in terms of institutions. And so I think what we're seeing is this, this kind of shaping of every, everything revolving in increasingly vivid ways around the preferences of the individual. Um, Carl Truman in his new book um, talks about um, expressive individualism, yeah. where he talks about the rise of the modern self. And I think that's we're seeing that on display with the hyper-connectivity, the isolation, the loneliness, and then the hyper-personalization of reality. I think all those factors, along with kind of an observation from Neil Postman back in the day where he's talking about how, how our media, he talked about TV, but we could insert YouTube and everything else, scripts reality so if we're consuming that much the scripting has occurred 
we learn to play along with the script. And if that script is pluralism and relativism, then we, people just hop in mm. and they just kind of go. So those, those are some of the things that I would see converging, shaping this generation for sure. That individualism makes sense. One of the examples that I'll use is years ago when I was a kid, it was like they had these commercials, Coke versus Pepsi, which implied there's two options if you want a soda. Well, now you buy your own soda making machine with a fizz and size and taste tailored just for you. And if that's not enough, you can go buy a soda now with your name on it. Everything is personalized. Yep. This generation can have what they want, where they want it, how they want it. And I think you're right to use the word it teaches or informs even subconsciously how they approach truth and religion as well. So I think that that's a there's probably a lot to be said for that individualistic strain. Hey, in just a minute, we're going to come to some questions. Uh, if yeah. you have some questions here for Jonathan Morrow, based on the most recent Gen Z data, uh, we want to ask it. We want to give you a chance to ask them. I've got a couple more while people are listing out their questions. Another thing that surprised me in this to a degree was that 91% of this generation said they're fine disagreeing with others. But the percentage, the breakdown was, I don't have a problem disagreeing with you, but then a huge percentage have a problem expressing that. What's the difference between yeah. those two? And what do you think maybe we can draw from that about how Gen Z thinks? Yeah, I think that's important because, you know, about 91%, like you said, agree that it's okay to disagree with somebody's opinion or point of view, but then... Are also our, our data also show that nearly half of Gen Z, 44%, agreed that it's not okay to challenge what someone else believes to be true. Hmm. So it's like, okay, so I think there's several things going on here. One is a hesitant hesitance, and I've just this is just something over and over and over again I hear from teenagers is I don't want to be perceived as judgmental. I don't want to be perceived as judgmental. And I feel like anytime that they feel like whenever they make a claim they're going to be perceived as judging. Um, I've even seen this in different ways in interaction among students. It's like, well, don't, I, I really appreciate how this person doesn't judge me. Right. But that there's a difference between being judgmental in a self-righteous sort of way, which is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew seven and evaluating and discerning what's actually true or false, good or bad, you know, beneficial, not right. So, so I think part of that's going on. I think we've lost, Tolerance. I know you've written a lot about that in your book. Sure. You've been tolerant and those kind of things. But I think one of the things that we're seeing is they don't want to disagree because they're feeling judgmental. But they also, um, I think there's there's fear of of kind of the, like you've mentioned already the cancel culture, the the blowback you get, the pushback that you get. You don't want to be ostracized already, you know. And so when you share these point of views, because it's personal to them, right? It's my preference. So I have an opinion about it and I'll share it out loud, but I'm not going to say yours is wrong. Hmm. So there's almost like, if you think of it like a roller coaster road going up over a mountain, okay. they'll get to the point where they recognize people have different opinions, but they're not going to go all the way over to say, actually you're wrong. <laughs> and, and that's the part they're, they're going to kind of leave that be in some ways because maybe they don't want to risk the relationship. Maybe they, you know, or maybe the conviction isn't deeply there that, Hey, well, actually, it, moral reality may be different, right? If if twenty four percent move to thirty one percent, you know, agree that it shifts over time based on society, well, 
that only about 10% of that convictional people who disagree with that strongly with that statement. So I think that's something that, that we have to factor in there as well, because I, I think they're hesitant to do that. I think there's maybe a couple of factors going on. One is we tend to associate what I believe and what I do with who I am. And so for many in this generation, they think if I disagree with you on an idea or behavior of yours, I can't still love and respect and care for you as an individual and think you're wrong. That distinction has been lost, which is what classical tolerance is. So at the heart of this, I think is confusion about identity. The other one is, is I don't know that many have the skills to just graciously say, you know what? Let me share with you why I see this differently and a couple questions you might consider. And I'd be curious what you think, like gentle pushback, the Mm -hmm. inability to do that, you risk so much differing with somebody, they'd rather not go there. So I think we have teaching to do within the church about where identity is and also how to navigate spiritual conversations in a way that's respectful and gracious. Um, and the good news is, Sean, is we have Twitter to teach us how civil discourse and interactions <laughs> ought to be, right? Because as soon as you disagree kindly on Twitter, everyone's going to appreciate it in context. They're not going to assume ill motives of you or anything else. Right? Of course. We'll, we'll start out there. But yeah, that's, that's not helping the conversation either. And we have Parlor too. Oh, wait, we used to. Um, uh, all right. That got we'll deleted. See, <laughs> we'll see if that comes back. Okay, another thing. By the way, if you have questions, put them in right now uh, for Jonathan in terms of what the latest research shows about Gen Z. But one of the promising things that came out of this was how much trust, or I'll just say it this way, and then I'll let you kind of run with it. Who does this generation trust and who do they not trust? Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the encouraging things about this, even in their decision making, is how they lean into older generations for input. Mm. And I think that should be very encouraging to both parents and adults, grandparents, uh, people in the church, pastors, leaders, teachers, that there's there is a sense of involving them in their life. Now, what they don't don't trust Mm. is they don't trust politicians. They don't trust news and they don't trust, um, you know, kind of institutional kind of voices voices that are out there and there's increasing data on that there's a lot of skepticism around those things because they don't trust um you know there's different different studies that have been been put on this that both the public and private trust even on journalism to the police to everyone else it's just at an all-time it just keeps going down all across the board and so i think one of the things that we're seeing partly because the way our entertainment news cycle works is you only see the negative over and over and over and over and over again. So there's always a scandal breaking somewhere. There's just statistically too many people in the world not to. And if that's all that you ever see, that just erodes trust. So I do think mentoring is, is something like Gen Zers actually look up to mentors and actually involve them and want them in their life. And that we have some cool research on there where they actually are involved in mentoring others, which is really, really a cool mm-hmm. piece uh, to, to dig into as well. But the institutional distrust is pretty significant. And so that, ha- that affects the church in general or it affects pastors in general. We've got to earn you know, in some ways we've got to earn their trust back because I think that, and 80% get their news on social media, 80% keep up 
So, so that's the ongoing echo chamber that's been served up according to an algorithm for them based on clicks and likes and everything else. And so those echo chambers and stuff is getting ever smaller. And so if the distrust is there already, it's only going to be increasing. And I think, you know, if you're, you know, if you're watching this right now and you haven't seen Netflix documentary called the social dilemma, I think that pretty vividly explains kind of how that's working itself out and how that's affecting institutional trust as well. So lots of interesting things to get out there for sure. At the very end of the report, you included kind of a short article, so to speak, where you talk about words. I'm really curious why you chose to focus on that and what your key point is for those of us who love and care about this generation, how to use words positively to reframe their worldview and ultimately their lives. Yeah. Identity and achievement is such a big piece of Gen Z's makeup and what's driving them forward. And in some ways, the narratives are so strong of what they're constantly consuming around them. We need to use our words more effectively and biblically than ever before. You know, a gentle, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Also, their identity, speak those words over them. Because, you know, they need to know that because I'm made in God's image, I'm valuable. They need to know that because I've been forgiven in Christ, now I'm free to obey. They need to know that it is not a conditional as if God loves you more if you obey. It's God loves you, so now you can obey. Or, you know, one of the, one of the big questions that I really think will be a defining question for this generation, it's really one for every generation, but given the hyper-personalization that I talked about earlier, Will this generation really listen to the voice of God revealed in scripture or will they listen to their own emotions and preferences and desires? And for us who care about Gen Z and work with them, will we do the same? Will we model that? Because they've grown up seeing desires and preferences and emotions win the day. And if we are doing our job well, we are pointing them to scripture and helping them to see that God's voice is the one that matters most. And, and that truth defines reality for them, not yep. this hyper-personalized piece. And yeah. I think that's a big question that we need to help them wrestle with and just really lean into. And, and honestly, you know, it's going to cost us that because we'll have to say no to our preferences and desires and things like, and show where we're submitting to the authority of God's word. If God really exists, if this stuff is really true, if God's word is really what it claims to be, and I believe all of those things, then are we going to let that voice be the loudest voice? And that's the piece that I think is really important for this next generation that we've got to do a better job with. You know, it's interesting at the end, you talked about words, but we've also talked a lot about relationships. Jesus came in grace and he came in truth. First Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul says, we gave you the gospel, which is ideas, but also our very own lives. So it's truth and it's relationships. It always has been, but that's also the case with this generation. There's a question here that says, how to speak to a daughter who doesn't listen or talk about Christianity and decides to live with boyfriend. She calls herself a Christian. I want to know your sense in this, Jonathan, but I get questions like this all the time and they're heartbreaking. A lot of them tied to the LGBTQ conversation and a range mm-hmm. of different ones. And a response I give that Greg Kokel said to me, he said, you know what? He said, young people who are rebelling need to be convinced not of an argument, but convinced of our love. That it starts with that relationship and focus on that and build that 
then there's the open door often to speak into somebody's life. Would you add anything to that or tell me your take? Yeah, no, I completely agree because the relationship is huge. I mean, I, it's heartbreaking because the as a dad, you know, a father of three, I want to see our, you know, our kids walking in the truth. And if, if someone is experiencing them not doing that and, and living that out, it's so painful. And so I, I, mm. I totally empathize with that. And so sometimes the temptation is like, okay, we'll just do this and that'll fix it. This truth piece. And it is true. I mean, I mean, you've written a book on chasing love talking about, look, cohabitation and all that stuff. That's not going to end well. We know that sociologically, we know that statistically, but just so you know, I love you. I'm here for you. Tell me what's going on in your life. Tell me I can pray for you. You know, ask me, I mean, rarely do people turn down being prayed for. I mean, they even want positive vibes or whatever, but they'll let them reframe (laughs) it however they want to. But Hey, tell me what's going on in your life. Is there something I can pray for you? And a lot of people are having a hard time right now, or, you know, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? I mean, even your, the mental health question that we talked about at the very beginning, you know, on a scale from one to 10, or just even some hard questions like, Hey, you know, especially if you have a decent relationship still with, with your kids in that regard, Hey, has anybody disappointed you lately? Has anybody broken a promise? Did anybody, has anybody left you out? Are you angry about anything? You know, just just drawing them in a little bit emotionally to what's going on in their internal world and showing that you care in the midst of that is going to build some context for the ability to hopefully move them along with the power of the Holy Spirit to a place that's healthier and better towards flourishing for them. But yeah, I, I'd agree. Relationships are huge and trying to preserve that is, is crucial um, to keep ourselves in that conversation. There's so much wisdom in that. One of the things my dad taught me growing up, I didn't know he was doing this when I was a kid, is he'd say, if you ask what a young person thinks, you'll get a cognitive response. If you really want a key to their heart, ask how they're feeling or the way you phrased it. Has anyone disappointed you recently? And that heart level connection, especially since many in this generation are willing to speak, is a bridge that can often lead to the worldview conversations. Um, maybe we're, we're getting a little bit short on time, but maybe one or two more things that really came out of this research that you would in- encourage big picture level parents, teachers, grandparents who look at Gen Z. What is some of the data pointing towards ways that we can either reach non-believers or kind of pass on the faith to young Christians? Yeah, I think one of them is, <clears throat> for example, this was a really fascinating one. I feel valued by the people in my life who are older than me, and that's close to about 76% would agreed by that. And they so they're it's one of those interesting, like when we talked about that pessimistically, you know, opt- optimistic, all of that happening yeah, at the same yeah. time. There's a distrust of older generations in, in, in terms of institutions, but there seems to be these glimmers of, yeah, I feel valued. I'll ask for input from, from an older generation. So put yourself in proximity to a teenager to allow them to ask mm. you a question or to engage them on or tell me more about that or lean in, right? So that's, that's one that I think is really significant. I also think it's really important that we pay attention to the expectations that we have on them because one of the things that they that they are feeling is they're feeling external and internal pressure. So 31% feel internally pressured, which is like an internal drive to be successful or to, a need to be perfect. And that's significant. And then 25% 
are feeling external prefer, prefer, um, pressured where they feel judged by older generations. There's that word again, right? That, that yeah. idea of judgment. Yep. And pressured by my parents' expectations. And those are verbatims, right? So those are, mm. so you've got this balance of pressures. And if you add to that, them already feeling tired, 58% are feeling, you know, overwhelmed, you know, negative emotion of tired, 44% feel lonely or alone. You mm. put all those things in a mix, something's going to give. And so, mm. so there's a, there's a lot going on in the internal world. The screens are constantly discipling. And we've got to come along and help um, script things in some ways and frame them out from God's perspective and, and really put those choices before them and go, hey, I'm not, I don't want to heap more pressure on you. I want to invite you to consider, you know, Jesus said, you know, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you'll find rest for your souls, right? His way of life. Um I think that message is very attractive right now to Gen Z and then along the way. And by the way, it's also true. It's the best way to live. Jesus really rose from the dead. God exists. You can trust the historical records of the Bible. Like what's awesome is these come together and you don't have to be stuck in your loneliness or this pressure or this defeating sense of, I can't get it all done. I mean, hmm. you have to have like a 5.3 GPA to get into college now because everything's so inflated, right? I mean, so it's like you have to have all the test scores, all the, I mean, the homework, everything is increasing. So there's just lots of pressure. And in some ways, they're more attuned to that than ever. And so I think those are just keys to find some decompression points and some entry points, whether that's like through humor, what we talked about, or some other yeah. things to engage them. There's some really good questions coming in. Can I get your quicker responses yeah. to these? Yeah. And then I want yeah, to respect I'll your time. Down. I got long-winded um, no, no, I'm, that my point wasn't that you got long winded. <laughs> my point John, is, I, know what I want, you're doing. <laughs> I want to respect your time. The question yes. is, um, we talked a lot about smartphone use and we talked mm. about emotional hurt. What does the data show about the coping mechanisms of Gen Z, maybe that are healthy and not healthy with the loneliness and tiredness and emotional hurt that they're going through? Yeah, I think I think one of the things that we need to pay attention to here, um, and this is an observation I think David really drew, drew out of the data, David Kinnaman, where the screen we're kind of the screens are a coping me- mechanism, and they're also the cause for the anxiety. So it's like it's kind of a catch twenty two, because a lot of them are like, okay, I want to, I go to my phone, or I talk to friends, or I do, or I watch something, or I or I play a game or I do some other screen to help me feel less anxious or less alone. The number one on feeling when I, when I feel lonely, the good news is, is they're going to reach out to other people. That's the, that's the biggest response for them. But from phones, there's the catch 22. So are these healthy and good things, you know, that they're moving towards or not? So yeah, that's kind of the catch 22 on that. So that's the short answer. All right. That's that's great. Last one I think is great. It says, what are a few recommendations for helping Gen Z move from emotional-based decision-making process to biblical worldview decision-making process? Now, let me give one sense while you're thinking of an answer. Maybe you already have it. But one thing I do is when I'm talking with young people and we're engaging theology, culture, worldview, the default is they'll say, I feel this way. And I'll often mm-hmm. stop and I'll say, I care about your feelings a ton. I want to know what you think about this. Mm -hmm. 
And then in my class, what'll happen is it's not that we don't talk about feelings at times, but they'll catch themselves to say, I feel, and they'll say, I know Dr. McDowell, I think. And I say, good. Now you're learning to make a distinction between emoting something and rationally thinking about it. Both are important, but there's a tendency to conflate them with this generation. That's just one small thing that I do. Do you have any suggestions or ideas how to help move from this emotive thinking to more worldview thinking? Yeah. And one of the things that I also do in light of that, which I've adopted as well, is the good intentions don't always lead to good outcomes. Mm. Meaning you can have good intentions in this decision or even this policy or anything else. That doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be a good outcome. That means, is it reality-based? Are you thinking it through? Um, Not to open a can of worms, one of the usually... One of the, usually the illustrations I'll use is like, okay, take the minimum wage. Let's just make the minimum wage $50 an hour. Good intention, right? We want to alleviate poverty. Well, guess what? The unintended consequence of that is going to be actually people will get less jobs. More people will go out of business. Less businesses will exist. And more people will not have as many opportunities for employment. So that good intention doesn't lead to a good outcome. The same can be true with your relationships. I know you want a healthy relationship with her. So... What are you doing to bring that about in the way that you communicate or boundaries that you set or something like that, right? So, so I think good intentions don't necessarily lead to good outcomes as a way to get at that. Jonathan, this is great stuff. There's other questions that have come through, but I will respect your time and also want to encourage people. This is the first Gen Z report 2018, which is still very timely. It's not dated. Some of the initial yep. research on Gen Z is, but I think that report still has a shelf life. Then the newest one you can see behind you, Gen Z Volume 2, just some of the insights and practical suggestions are very, very helpful. So I hope people will pick up a copy of that, study that, think about it. Uh, Let me ask you, one of the things you're doing at Impact 360, you guys commissioned this study, but you also are trying to address some of the issues within Gen Z practically. You give me a chance to speak, do videos, do curriculum with you. And you know, Impact 360 is one of my favorite ministries reaching a Gen Z, but give us just a sense of what you do and uh, how it could help us reach this generation. Yeah, because people asked earlier, what do we do? And that's one of the reasons why we did the research. We know we experience every day because we get to work with high school and college students and master's students, 14 to 20, 22, 24 year olds in different on-campus experiences at Impact 360. So we do high school summer camps, worldview, apologetics, leadership training. You're a part of that with Propel and Immersion. We also do a nine-month gap year where we take nine months after high school and say, okay, how do you think about life? right? How do we figure this stuff out? We have a master's experience. We walk with them through those things. We help them think with biblical worldview and spiritual formation. We try to bring all those things together for them. So we get to work with them practically, and we wanted to see what the research was showing at a broad level. So we bring those two together. And so we we, we, we do that on a regular basis. People can find more ab- about that at impact360.org. But we, so if you have a high schooler or a college student in the house um, or someone you know, we have resources for that. We have courses. With this research in particular, a, res- a free resource that we've created. So if, you, if you're watching this and you want more, if you go to genzlab.com, genzlab.com, you'll have the opportunity to get access to different parts of the research as well as a, a new season of how do you deal with different topics. And so, Sean, I know we've, we recently interviewed you about – kind of topics about sex, culture, relationship, and how to, how that's affecting Gen Z. So you'll have access to videos around that. We'll have other conversations around 
some of these ideas around mental health or different things that'll be coming out regards to um, how do we how do we live out that biblical worldview in a practical way? And so I want to encourage people to check that out, impact360.org and genzlab.com, um, as hopefully we can be an ally or a resource to you in the process with courses or videos or sending your students in summer. We're just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And, uh, and so come see us. We'd love to have you guys down. Jonathan, I want to impress upon people watching how much it takes in terms of time and effort and resources to do a study like this Gen Z study. I don't think people have a clue, and I didn't until you walked me through what it takes in partnership with Barna. So for somebody like myself who writes and speaks and has kids, this is a very, very helpful resource. I think far more involved than a lot of people realize, which is okay. So I want to personally thank you for doing that. And again, GenZLabs.com and Impact360.org are two great resources, biblical worldview, and they line up with the exact kind of training we do here at Biola, reaching the Gen Z. So Jonathan, thanks for coming on. 